When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along to your podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. We release new episodes every Thursday, so if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to keep up to date. You join us this week in the English county of Essex. I'm on the busy high street of the historic market town of Saffron Walden. But if I begin walking about a mile west, our environment begins to look and sound altogether different. Because soon you walk next to a tall red brick wall that delivers you to an ornate gateway and square gatehouse all watched over by a majestic stone lion. On passing through, you emerge into a scene of charm and tranquility. To your left, sweeping lawns stretch down to the River Cam, home to geese, swans and ducks, <laughs> who live and play on its shallow waters. On the other side of the river are further lawns, where Audley End and Littlebury Cricket Club play their home fixtures. The thwack of ball on bat redolent of lazy summer afternoons bathed in a bucolic scene. The only reminder of the sometimes threatening world beyond the hedgerows being a squat Second World War shelter to one side. To your right rise the spires and domes of the Grand Jacobean mansion that is Audley End House. With too many glinting windows to count, this vast, welcoming manor, with its walls a warm yellow in the late summer sun, looks perfectly placed in the grand landscape of rolling hills, mature woodlands, lush lawns, and ornate gardens that surround it. Walking past manicured hedges near the front of the house, you might once have caught the smell of a meal being prepared for Lord and Lady Braybrook by their Victorian cook, Mrs. Crocombe. This recipe is from Alexis Sawyer. It's almost as if Audley End House was made for the senses. Audley End House was absolutely made for the senses, and they're at the heart of the design theory of the landscape as well. Everything is designed around touch, taste, sight, smell and sound to really encompass you into the landscape. English Heritage Landscape Advisor and Historian Louise Crawley. So as we stand now, Louise, in the centre of the property's landscaped rear gardens, 
got the lawnmower in the background and we're in the parterre garden with its geometric flower beds as we look around and all this decorative planting we can get a real appreciation of what you've just been describing Yes, so we're stood in the centre of the parterre garden next to the fountain, surrounded by 182 different flower beds, different shapes, designed by William Sorey Gilpin back in 1832. And the idea of a parterre is that you should be able to look down onto it, which is why the reception rooms at Audley End are based up on the first floor, to really make the most of this beautiful area around us. And the planting, as you say, is absolutely fantastic. The colours and the variety of uh, different plants on show here. So from above, if you're looking down into it, you really get a sense of the colour and the sense of the number of plants needed. And whilst you walk amongst it, you can look at the differences in textures and the, the different feel of the different plants and some of the scents as well. So this summer we've got things like fennel out in the gardens which really help add to it as you brush past it. It's really mathematical, but also very aesthetic and beautiful as well. How many different colours have we got here? We must have dozens, all, all, all the colours of the rainbow effectively, oh gosh, in, in all so. these flowers laid out in front of us. Um, yellows and violets, mauve colours as well, oranges, reds, greens obviously in the foliage, plenty to look at. Yeah, you get really strong violet hues from the heliotropes, which are a really low-lying little ground-covering plant essentially. And then some of the higher colour comes from those big red star-like dahlias. There's a real contrast of colours on display here this summer. It's really lovely. If we take a zoom out from our immediate location, so to speak, and we look a little bit further beyond what we can see, we've got the house obviously to one side and then we've got a bigger horizon to look at to our right. What are the different areas and features of the gardens here at Audley End House? So we're stood in front of the Jacobean mansion, but actually what we're standing in is a 19th century garden. So there's a couple of hundred years difference here, but the garden was designed to be appropriate for the house. It's a sort of modern reconstruction of what they thought a 17th century garden might have looked like. But actually the 19th century parts of the garden are stood within a much wider landscape that's got lots of different complex layers to it. So if we turn around, we can see the Temple of Concord, which is an 18th century folly built up in the pastoral parkland landscape. So that's part of the 18th century period of the house. We're also surrounded by some absolutely beautiful trees such as the big cedar tree in the corner there and those are again part of the 18th century landscape. And if we walk round to the other side of the house, as I'm sure we'll do later on, you encounter the Brownian landscape. So you have the River Cam which has been reshaped to form a lake, although it's actually still part of the river, so that's a real sort of trick that they've tried to play there. And other parts of the garden from this period include the Elysian Garden, where we'll be going later on as well. Uh, and there's lots of garden features like the Robert Adam Bridge and the 19th century gardens continue with the pond gardens which have got some interesting features as well which we might explore later on such as the Pulamite Rockery which is pretend rock <laughs> to right. really trick your senses. <laughs> okay, very interesting. And what it is really, I think, everywhere you look there's something trying to grab your attention depending on where you're standing. We're standing here right in the centre and there's lots attracting our immediate attention but Everything is designed to just take the eye, isn't it? Yes, very much so. I mean, the parterre is a fantastic example of that. So it depends if you're looking down on it from above, you get a sense of how it all fits together as a puzzle, or if you're walking amongst it and you really feel it's setting in the wider landscape. But remembering that we're separated from that wider landscape by the ha-ha. So it keeps those formal and informal bits very separate. And what's the ha-ha? The ha-ha is the hidden dip. So if you don't walk too far towards the Temple of Concord, as you might fall into it, but it is designed to be a hidden fence or a hidden barrier which keeps animals, if they're grazing out in the parkland, keeps them out of your formal gardens, keeps people out of your formal gardens as well, remember? So they have a dual purpose from that. So if we're looking down the path from this central fountain area, and we see those that young family um, sitting at the top of the steps there, which is part of the formal garden, beyond there, beyond the 
wilder grass which is growing up, that is a, a dip effectively. Yes, there's a very deep ditch there. Don't go running up the, up the hill like they're doing currently. And then beyond there, obviously, is this wider parkland, which is a different way of interpreting the landscape. Yes, we have a much more sort of classical setting. So there's a little bit of sort of doesn't really go with the architecture of the house almost. We've got the Jacobean sort of royal palace kind of effect and then the 18th century Arcadian landscape with its classical pillars in the form of the Temple of Concord. And that's reflected on the other side of the house by the Temple of Victory, which you can see up on the hill on the other side as well. So it's a real sort of classical Arcadian pastoral, beautiful landscape that we're surrounded by. So it's fantastic. There's lots of layers of influences over time. And, you know, I think that's a really striking thing, isn't it? Yeah, we go back even further. I mean, first of all, before Audley End was built here, there was Walden Abbey, which dates from the 12th century. So we still even have earthworks from the 12th century abbey out in the landscape, which you can go and find today. Amazing. So we're talking, really, from what we've just been discussing, about sensory history. But sensory history, this is a new historical field of study, isn't it? It's a relatively new field of study. I think historians have always used accounts that involve sort of sensory accounts of people's experiences, whether it's in landscape or other parts of their lives. People write down what their experiences of their senses were. Maybe you heard the clock chiming in the background. You might record, oh, I woke up as I heard the chimes of the clock. So people have always written about their senses, but it tends to be that historians use them when we're telling wider stories. They don't tend to be put front and centre. So sensory history tries to make sure that we're using those accounts to understand how people perceive their surroundings with their senses and puts that first. So we let those sources guide the way in which we write the history from them. Sensory history, how does it help us understand the past? Sensory history is useful to us when we're trying to sort of understand how people in the past perceive their surroundings, essentially. So we're looking for accounts in which people either write down things that they, they noticed that they smelt, for example, or sounds they heard, things that they perhaps looked out on and admired is very often the case. So standing in a historic garden, historic landscape, usually accounts we get of gardens and landscapes are... I really enjoyed looking out at the view, or sometimes I, I, I didn't like the view at all, actually. So they tend to be, we get negative experiences as well. But the way in which they help us to understand the past is that we can kind of see if there's a commonality of thought. So for example, is there a sort of set trend or fashion or design, for example, that's really evident in the way that people are sharing the, the same opinions on things? And whether perhaps that that's just a sort of general held view or whether that's a shared sort of learned cultural thing that they felt like they have to take part in in order to become a sort of member of the society they're trying to belong to. So they're a really interesting uh, way of us further understanding people in the past as well. And then for us as historians in the present, people who look after properties like Audley End, if we're trying to recapture for the visitor the sort of experiences you would have had. We want to understand how people in the past perceived them and what sort of sensory experiences they had. So it helps us to shape your visitor experience today. It's lived human experience, isn't it, fundamentally? It's about taking the past and imprinting it onto the present so that people can really live through people who've been here 100, 200, 300 years before. Exactly. It adds the humanity back into history a little bit. And it's one of the most important things to bring out is the fact that actually a lot of sensory experiences are quite mundane and not very interesting at all, probably, to other people. So they've been overlooked in the past as well. So sensory historians really try to bring everything together that's perhaps been overlooked or not been considered quite as interesting to really shape up sort of an experience of how people used to live. 
and it's one of the things that we can actually in gardens and landscapes achieve because we have heritage plant varieties so we can take you to a rose that was bred you know, a couple of hundred years ago you can inhale the scent as they would have done several hundred years ago so that's a really exciting thing and a really exciting opportunity for gardens to make the most of with sensory history. And the gardens that we're standing in are they faithfully represented in terms of the time period that they're meant to evoke? Yes, so the parterre we're standing in was restored in the 1990s. It was restored back to the way it appeared during the 19th century in the 1830s when it was first set out. So we've got a mixture of bedding plants which are put in every year and we actually rotate the bedding at least twice a year as well so you get a spring display and a summer display. And it's also got a mix of perennial, herbaceous perennial plants and shrubs as well which are there all year round. So you get a real changing feast. Every time you come and visit it will look slightly different. So based upon what we've just been discussing, how can English heritage use this idea of sensory experience and express that to visitors? So sensory history is obviously so important for us in making decisions about how we conserve and present a historic garden and landscape today. We need to be able to convey the type of feeling that you would have had as a visitor in the past to make sure that experience is pretty much the same today. And as we've talked about, you can actually, with plants, recreate the smells and the different colours and the different variety of shapes and textures that you would have seen in the past we can still do that today and with things like water features you could still have the same soundtracks today as well so we really do have the chance to recapture those experiences and of course this year we actually decided to make it front and center of your summer visits to English heritage properties in June with our make sense of history campaign so you might have spotted the old style ministry of work signs popping up at our sites and rather than actually telling you to keep off the grass, we were encouraging you to take your shoes off and walk on it to really connect with the past and really connect with the place that you're standing in. We wanted you to stop and listen to the echoes of the past or stop and smell the flowers that would transport you back in time because you really can do that with gardens and landscapes. And at Audley End, we really hope those experiences can continue for the visitors. So you can go and listen to the rush of water next to the rockery in the pond garden. And you can think about how it sets the scene for that part of the gardens. It really gives the alpine feel they were trying to create. As we come towards the height of summer, you can be amazed by the sight of dazzling colour in the parterre beds. And you can smell the very last scent of those last roses that have just about clung on. Or perhaps, because sensory history doesn't always have to be lovely, maybe you could go to the stable yard and take a, take a deep breath in, because that smells pretty much the same as well. <laughs> so yeah, you can get the smell of the horses, basically. And that's just as important. These are the sorts of smells that we would have had in gardens. Not everything is lovely all of the time, and sensory history is really important in conveying both sides of that story. But there are nicer options as well. Uh, you might walk over the tea house bridge in the Elysian Garden and touch the cool stone, and think about how many people have actually stood doing that, admiring the view. Or perhaps you want to take your shoes off and enjoy the feel of the Brownian lawns around the front of the house. And I really think you ought to round your trip to Audley End off with a visit to the cafe, because that really will give you a full rounding off of the senses for your day out. Well, you can't possibly end a visit to any lovely English heritage property without a quintessentially English cup of tea. Exactly. I really think you should make it a whole day out for the senses by finishing it off in the cafe. It sounds like then, Louise, from what you're saying, that understanding the past becomes this vibrant, textured and multi-dimensional thing when you're interpreting it through your senses. You're really interacting with the location and really thinking hard about how am I enjoying this and how am I experiencing it? Yes, there's lots of examples of this that we can look at. And I'm going to introduce you now to somebody else who can bring us a deeper knowledge of the subject of sensory history, if you'd like to follow me. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. 
The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I'm now meeting PhD student Helen Brown. Helen, just tell us where we're standing. We're standing on a bridge that's just over the top of a cascade which runs from the River Cam into the Elysian Garden. That turns into a smaller river that goes underneath the tea bridge and out into the landscape. And the thing that you can really appreciate from where we're standing here is that we're out of the sunshine. It's about 12 o'clock in the afternoon right now, so that's a good thing. And we are literally covered by this foliage. So what sort of trees are growing up on this bridge? Because in fact, they're growing on the bridge, aren't they? Uh, which is made out of brick and wood by the looks of things. Yeah, so we're standing under some lovely yew trees that are evergreen, they're green all year round and they're really keeping the sun out very nicely because the sun has just come out and it's quite warm now. And um, it's, yeah, it's really growing into the structure of the bridge and we've got this decorative railing that's made out of raw wood material to really tie that all together. So you, you can really look at the landscape of Audley End House and Gardens in multiple different ways. So maybe we should go down into the Elysian Garden and we'll get a sense of how it all sounds down there. Yeah, let's get a look at the cascade from, from a place where you can actually see it rather than just hear it. <laughs> So just standing on this verge by the cascade and this pond, is it a pond or is it? Yeah, well it carries on, it carries on all the way through into the, what used to be the home farm. So it is moving but it's, they've made it very still so it's quite surprising you've got this quite agitated cascade coming in and then all of a sudden it's very calm. We've got some birds and insects around. So is this the calming of the cam, effectively? Yeah, yeah. I suppose you could say that, yeah. This garden, the Elysian Garden, was, was really designed to be almost separate from the rest of the landscape. There would have been more foliage breaking it up. I mean, you really can't see anything else. You can't really see the house from where we're standing, so you're very much enclosed by trees and shrubberies. The trees are very mature. Must be at least 50 to 60 feet tall, some of them. And as you say, there's nothing else to look at. You can't, there's no horizon as such. You're just enveloped by nature and trees and grass. And you've got this sound of the cascade behind you. And they've manipulated it, haven't they? They've manipulated the environment to sort of go from natural to this pond view. And that's the way that the visitor can experience the gardens in all these different ways. Yeah, so when this garden was built in the 18th century, garden designers and landowners had a lot of control over what they put onto their landscape. They could, within reason, decide what they wanted, where they wanted it, and what kind of feeling they wanted it to create. So this cascade is at once visual, but it also has this lovely sound that comes out of it. One visitor who wrote about his experience here said it, it was a, a musical waterfall, which really sets the tone of the place. And this was built to do that and what landowners and designers had to decide was what level of volume they wanted to create because you can add more rocks, take rocks away to make a different sound altogether. So a garden theorist, Thomas Waitley, wrote in 1770 about choosing the right level of volume to create a certain emotional response from any listener who was going to visit your garden. So he wrote, a gently murmuring rill, just gurgling, just dimpling, suits with solitude, 
and leads to meditation. A brisker current, which babbles among pebbles, spreads cheerfulness all around. A greater rapidity and more agitation to a certain degree are animating, but in excess they alarm the senses. The roar and the rage of a torrent, its force, its violence, tend to inspire terror. So you have to get the level right, and I think they've done it really well here. It's like, it's just loud enough to be noticeable, but not, I don't feel any terror. <laughs> yes, and obviously every so often you may well be interrupted by the uh, Stansted flight path, which I think yeah. is a plane just came over our heads just now. But apart from that, you do get the sense that you are in a, a heavenly garden, and that's why it's called the Elysian Garden, isn't it? Because yeah, it is. Elysian relates to Elysium. Yeah, it's, it's a classical metaphor. So you're supposed to feel like you're in this almost otherworldly, very meditative, very beautiful area, and I think it really does that. Tell us where we are now and how would you describe the space as well? So we've moved out of the very enveloping, closed area of the Elysian Garden into this extremely open part of mostly lawns and grass. And you've got a real panoramic view of the whole site. You've got the eye catcher up in one direction. You've got the beautiful facade of the house in the other. And you've got this lovely river right here, which used to have boats on. And, and now has geese and ducks. And now has many geese that have made it their home. I think there were swallows over our heads yes, there as was, well. Yes, there was, seemed to be a, a flurry of swallows and house martins by the looks of it. And what's this eye catcher in the distance? So this is the Temple of Victory. So this was built to commemorate the victory that we had in the Seven Years' War. It's in the 1770s. It's a circular building with a nice dome top and these columns going around the outside. You could sit in there and have a beautiful view all the way down the hill. And it's a very vast landscape. There's lots for the senses to appreciate. We've got lots of tall trees flanking the respective driveways and paths that sort of go around the edge of the site. We've got a cloud hedge which uh, hides the servant's wing and um, a bridge to one side as well on the right hand side. If we cast our eyes to the left we've got the expansion of the cam which they've manipulated and then we've got a, a lovely humpback bridge with three arches as well right towards the left hand side. Yeah, that, so. was, that was designed by Robert Adam and he did some of the interiors as well. And We've got the stables over here as well in a Elizabethan style. Yes, in a lovely sort of red brick. A beautiful, expansive landscape. And also, I believe at one stage there would have been the knock of willow and leather. Yeah, so this area is, is really flat and it was, it was actually flattened for this purpose, but it was, in the mid-19th century, a purpose-built cricket pitch. The sons of the third Lord Braybrook learnt cricket at their school and at university in Cambridge and they liked to bring it home and put on grand cricket matches for the whole neighbourhood and play a local side or they played Marlebone Cricket Club as well. Which is in London, isn't it? Yes, it is. It was one of the first official cricket clubs, I believe. These grand cricket matches, which sometimes went over multiple days, were real delights for all the senses. So obviously you had the visual spectacle of the game itself but also being outside, you had the feelings of the breeze and the sun on your skin or in, through your clothes and your hair. They threw large luncheons as well for sometimes 80 or 90 guests. So you might hear some of the smells or the sounds of them preparing that big event. You could hear the sounds of gameplay, bat hitting ball and 
the spectators will be having conversations all around you. And applause, I expect. And applause, absolutely. When someone hits four runs or even six. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder how many cricket balls went into this sort of expanded uh, river here. <laughs> but the question is who was sent in to fetch them out again, I suppose. And what's really interesting from a century history point of view is depending on who you are and what you were doing within this event, you would have a completely different sound experience. So if you were a player, if you were batting, you would be able to hear conversations between the players, maybe the rustling of your own clothes as you ran across the pitch. If you were a spectator, you might not be able to hear all of those subtleties and you'd be, it'd be drowned out by the conversations around you. You'd be clapping, maybe a cheer. And if you were a member of staff inside the house setting up the lunch, you might only hear the occasional applause. So you have different characters, all part of the same event, all contributing to the same event, but having completely different experiences of that. All existing with their own time and yeah. space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have these geographies of sounds and they are very specific to where you are and what you're doing. Can you situate us now then, Helen? Whereabouts are we standing and, and what kind of visions are we sort of experiencing and sounds as well? So we are right in the heart of the kitchen garden. This is grown in the same way that it would have been in the Victorian times and we're, we're very proud of that. It's full of life and everything is ready to be harvested. We've got some really chunky onions coming out there and all different colours of the vegetables that they're growing here. And there's some beetroot being cut as well, I believe. There is, yeah. The sort of sounds that you get here are far more productive than we, where we were in other areas of the garden. You've got the sounds of working, maybe if there's any digging going on or harvesting of the, the stuff that's ready to get eaten. This is kind of like a practical space then, where it was all aesthetic. There was mowing that we were experiencing at the start of the podcast. Here it's the kind of quiet aspect of growing. So where we were enjoying the sights of the nature with the flowers and the wide open spaces here, we were really working with nature to cultivate the land and produce lots of really tasty things. And we've got herbs that smell gorgeous. Another important feature of any kitchen garden was the cut flowers section. So you would cut beautiful stems and have them on display in the house. So you're bringing outside, inside. And there's lots of wildlife as well. I think I've seen a, a white butterfly, a cabbage butterfly. So yes, it's humans trying to control nature in the space that we're standing in effectively. Yeah, we're really making the most of the space that is here, producing loads of different varieties of fruits and vegetables that will be enjoyed. And the children are enjoying, of course, walking around. That was just the sound of a couple of children kicking up the stones of the... Uh, surface that we're standing on so they're enjoying the sensory history experience of yeah. it as well yes it's a very tactile space so they've also got um an area where you can taste some of the apples that are ready to be eaten so you're even the visitors have a really engaging experience with this space helen you've now brought us into a very quiet corner of the elysian garden it's um, a shaded area and we're surrounded by trees, a nice relaxing spot. How and where can we find historic evidence to understand this idea of sensory experience in the past? Where are the records of people recording these sorts of things? Sensory history is, is really abundant in written sources once you start looking for it. I focus a lot on diaries, letters, newspapers, travel journals of how people describe their experiences in their own words, which I think is really important. 
if those maybe don't exist, you can look at paintings and plans and you can infer certain sensory stimuli. If they're maybe not here now, if you have a painting of it happening at the time, then you can infer that those are the kinds of sights and sounds, etc., that you're going to get. You can look at surviving objects. There's lots of garden buildings and ancient trees that are still here, so you can, you can even touch the things that would have been touched in the past. What you're saying there is that you're getting a sense now of the real passing of time because a lot of these trees now are very mature compared to how they would have been 100, 200 years ago. Yeah, when you're designing a massive garden like this, the designer will always have a thought for the future of what it's going to look like. So 200 years ago when you plant small saplings, you have to have a vision of what that's going to be like for us today as visitors and what they're going to look like. So placing certain colours together and knowing how tall they're going to get is all part of the design process. And in these records where people are either painting or drawing or writing about the things that they're seeing at places like Audley End House and Gardens, what do they focus on when they're talking about these aspects in text? Are they quite descriptive, are they quite poetic or are they quite sort of matter of fact? I suppose it depends what kind of sense you're looking for. So unsurprisingly for gardens and, and design landscapes the majority of references are to do with sight and looking so with gardens because they come in and out of fashion you can often get two writers talking about the same space with completely different reactions so at Audley End we have two visitors who came about 30 years apart the first in 1797 really enjoyed those open spaces with the undulating hills saying that there were no dark forests or sharp rocks or high mountains that burden the horizon or inspire gloomy thoughts. He found it a really peaceful area to be and very calming. 30 years later, we have another visitor who writes about exactly the same landscape saying, the extensive views, grand and striking as they are at first, become tiresome in their time from uniformity. So we have two men looking at the same landscape, one having a reaction of being very calm and peaceful and describing the sweetness of the place and another man who is a bit bored by it, really. <laughs> and why are these past experiences so important to reflect on now, here in our present, as we walk around such a lovely collection of vistas? I think it's so important to feel that connection with people in the past. I think there is a trend with heritage sites and academic history that really wants to focus on ordinary people and ordinary experiences. So moving away from great narratives of exceptional events, we're really getting down into the nitty gritty of how people interacted with the world around them in physical bodies every day. It humanises the experience we're having right now, effectively. Yeah, it, it really breathes life into the past. How do these sensory experiences in the past differ from those that we have today? Obviously, we see a more mature landscape now, are there any other differences? Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting because we, where we want to feel really connected to the past, we do have to be quite careful of not transposing our ideas of modern gardens onto the past. We have to be careful of not just saying, oh, well, I can hear that now, so that must have been how it was in the past. And actually, if you're in a space like this, noticing sounds or noticing sights or feelings that you've got and engaging with them and going, well, I wonder what that was like for somebody in my position in the past. How would it feel to be here in different ways? And I think the overriding sense of feeling would be that the visitor and probably the people who own the property feel quite relaxed, whereas the uh, workers would feel quite active and tired, maybe, a lot of the time. Yes, so it's all about 
contextualizing who you're talking about and who you are. So as a, as a leisured visitor like we are today, we're experiencing this in all of its beauty. But if you work in the gardens and you're here every day and you're putting in the physical effort and the manual labor, you're going to have a very different relationship to the space, which is really interesting. So what you're describing is the way that we experience English heritage sites today, I think, can be a great way of calming ourselves. We talked earlier about the calming of the cam, and um, that's something that is quite sort of vogue these days, this looking after your mental health and being in nature and enjoying nature and getting back to your roots, so to speak. Can these sites be stress relievers, and would you recommend people to come and visit and get out of the hustle and bustle of cities and towns? Yeah, absolutely I would. I think being in nature and if you're going at it with a sensory mindset, being really in the present and feeling things with your body is is so beneficial to us. And we've had such a lovely day. We're out, it's the sun is shining. It's definitely lightened my mood from a very grey train that I came into today. So for me personally, I love this garden and seeing it being so well looked after and it's absolutely beautiful today and just really appreciating all the hard work that goes in from all the staff and the volunteers to keep it open for us. It's a real privilege to have this available to us. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to discover the story behind the 1,000th blue plaque to be unveiled in London. One Robert Street, just off the Strand, was the clear leading contender because it was the base for the Women's Freedom League from 1908 through to 1915, absolutely when the organisation was at its most active. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>